Welcome to Roll Call, a 126th Air Refueling Wing podcast of the Illinois Air National Guard at Scott Air Force Base. I'm your host, Technical Sergeant Brian Ellison. The Roll Call podcast focuses on people, mission, and community. Hello, deployed friends. Thanks for listening to Roll Call. Coming up, the big cheese himself, the 126th Air Refueling Wing Commander, Colonel Tom Jackson. We talked so long that I'm breaking his interview up into two parts. Before we get to part one of the commander's interview, remember that 5,000-page bill the kids in Congress passed at the end of December? It's called the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. In the bill was the Collection of 2020 Social Security Tax Deferral. It extended the period for collecting deferred 2020 social ta- social security taxes. The period for collection is now through the end of December 2021 instead of January 1st to April 30th. The amount of social security taxes deferred in 2021 will be collected over 24 installments beginning with pay period January 16th and ending December 4th. 2021 normal 6.2 percent social security tax withholdings will also be deducted from your pay beginning in uh, january 2021 your my pay les remarks section will show the deferred 2020 oasdi collection amount as well as your remaining balance to be collected Here's the good part. If you separate or retire before December 4th, 2021, and prior to the deferred Social Security tax being collected in full, you're still responsible for the remainder of your Social Security tax repayment. The unpaid balance will be collected from your final pay. If there are insufficient funds to collect the full amount, you may receive a debt letter with instructions for repayment. I'll add links in the description for more information. Joining us on the Roll Call Podcast today, I'm very excited about this, the Wing King, the head honcho, 126th Air Refueling Wing Commander, Colonel Tom Jackson. Sir, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Sergeant Allison. I appreciate you welcoming down and uh, happy to talk with you. Now, we got to start off with some more serious stuff here before we get to the fun talk about cycling and all that stuff. Um, the... Air Force just released the IG racial disparity report. What uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on that report that just came out? Um, I read through it uh, and really not surprised. Um, not surprised at what they found was there was some disparity. There was uh, some areas of the Air Force where uh, the racial um, makeup is a little more heavily weighted toward one side or the other, and it didn't surprise me at all actually that they actually found some disparity. Well, how do you see that uh, affect the wing, or what's that look like across our wing? Uh, well, our wing is uh, unique in that uh, where we've come from, being from Chicago, uh, we were always a, a very diverse wing. Even there in Chicago, we had a, a great pool to choose from up there. And down here in St. Louis, it really didn't change. And uh, we are actually more diverse here in the wing than uh, the actual, if you look at just metrics of uh, – a percentage of uh, black, percentage of white, percentage of women, those kind of things. Uh, we're pretty much ahead of or equal to on all numbers, uh, I think, except for maybe women, uh, I think was one of them. But uh, overall, the wing is much more diverse than the local area uh, from a generic makeup. But uh, we do have some areas, that, just like the report said, that the, the diversity of a specific area uh, or specific shop um, might be more focused on white males or maybe not enough blacks or what's something like that. But 
really has nothing to do with the way we hire or recruit. It's just uh, um, uh, just sometimes the way it is, you know. What is the wing doing to uh, address some of those uh, differences that you were talking about? Right. So uh, when I took command about almost a year ago now, um, of course, it feels like, uh, you know, feels like it's only been nine months, right, uh, um, underwater. But um, that was one of the things we looked at. And, of course, then uh, obviously throughout the 2020 was a, a lot of racial tension. And we looked at that pretty hard really quickly, really early on, um, even before any of that other stuff kind of floated up. But uh, what we realized was we, we got to start looking at from – from the beginning. So from a recruiter standpoint, where are the recruiters going? Where are they Where are they looking for folks to come into this wing? So if they're focusing on O'Fallon High School, uh, that's, that's a diverse uh, location, but it's not as diverse um, as some others. You know, if, if you, and, and our recruiters are really responsible from essentially I-70 South. Uh, I think it's like 140 high schools or something like that. It, it, it's an incredible area, but all of Southern Illinois, uh, and really, you know, the St. Louis metropolitan area is our recruiting base. So we started with that and said, where are you recruiting from? Uh, where are we getting these folks? Uh, are, we, are we getting out there and educating some of these kids to say, hey, listen, if you come into the Guard, we'll pay your tuition, you get a college degree, and you can be a pilot or a med tech or a vehicle maintenance operator, whatever it is, um, rather than saying, well, what are our vacancies? We, will, we know we can fill that vacancy from this high school, so let's go there. Uh, really kind of opening the aperture from the very beginning on a, a recruiting standpoint. And then once the folks are in the wing and become members of our team, then we start to opening up opportunities of, let's say someone signed up and said, I'm, I'm going to go security forces. Well, if they want to do security forces and then after their first term, they say, you know what, I've had enough. I don't want to do this anymore. Instead of getting out, we tell them, well, how about going to this job or that job, trying to keep them in the wing and uh, and keep folks in. So if we, if we kind of give everybody regardless of who you are that open door policy that this whole wing is yours to 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 decide where you want to go and what you want to do and if the career you chose in the beginning is great great keep going if not pick something else and stay in service and and keep going and then we really focus on uh, uh, some of those folks who have desires to move on especially trying to look at that racial diversity side and uh, and educating folks that hey this this is this is an opportunity uh, there is there's opportunities for everyone to do whatever you want to do. Here's the path to go, and here's what you need to do to get there, and here's how we can help you get there. But ultimately, it always comes down to the member. What do they want to do, and what are they willing to do to get to that next level or other level? All right, shifting gears uh, to the other headline here. Uh, that's been the headline for 2000 for the past, what feels like 2,000 years, um, is – Vaccines and distribution. When when do you see that happening for the wing? And uh, what's how's the wing going? Well, first off, yeah. How what do you see vaccine distribution look like for the wing? So uh, being a uh, uh, mission partner on the three seventy fifth on this installation, Scott Air Force Base, uh, we're not all alone. Uh, so we've been working real closely with the mission partners. Three seventy fifth Air Mobility Wing is the installation commander, so he pretty much runs the show on everything. Uh, however, uh, being a guard unit, we're really tied in more closely with our Joint Force headquarters in Springfield. Uh, so initially, we were working with the 375th on getting our total numbers for the wing, our total personnel. How many, how many vaccines would we need if 100% of our folks uh, needed it or, or requested it or where we were mandated to get it? Uh, we started with that. 
And then since then, we've kind of changed gears a little bit. And now the, uh, the uh, National Guard of Illinois, the entire Army and Air National Guard, the Joint Force Headquarters, is taking care of the, all the ordering of the, the vaccines that we need. So we're currently in the process of working with them now to get that. Uh, we don't know when we're going to get them, but uh, eventually we will. Uh, obviously, everything right now is still voluntary because it's under emergency use authority. But uh, once we get the, the vaccines delivered at some point, uh, everything's based on a tier. So we have a tier one, tier two for us. And the tier one is those first responders of medical security forces, firefighters. Um, tier two is everybody else, including our Title Fives, uh, straight civilians, everybody. So they're all title, they're all tier two. And within each of the tiers, uh, we are uh, rank ordering everybody uh, by um, number one, volunteerism. So who, who is willing to get the vaccine? So they're, they're in that, that uh, top half, if you will, of that particular category. And then we rank order based upon uh, um, availability and access and timing and things like that. So tier one, you know, first responders, security forces, medical, they're, they're going to get theirs pretty quickly. And anybody who says, no, thank you, I don't want it, will be at the bottom of the list, and that's fine. And then tier two, same thing. Uh, for that one's a little different. We're kind of looking at uh, the folks who are most impactful um, from a mission execution standpoint. So the folks that are going to be deploying uh, here in uh, March uh, to Guam, they'll be the ones kind of on the leading edge of that list to, uh, to get it done. And then uh, uh, air crew, uh, command post controllers, uh, maintenance, uh, th those kind of things that um, especially the shops that are one deep and those kind of things, we're really looking at it from a, an operational necessity standpoint. And then once again, it's, it's all volunteer. So you have to look at that and say, what, what are my priorities? Make the priority list and then take out the, the volunteers, put them up and then uh, rack and stack and, and do that. But it'll, it'll take some time. Uh, I have no idea when or if it's ever going to become mandatory. I'd imagine it would be, but uh, we'll have to see. We'll plan it by years as it goes. So just to reiterate, uh, again, I'll just ask you, you don't know what time, you don't have a timeline on when we'll see no. those first responders getting it? Now, when the uh, Air Force brought out the, and CDC brought out the guidelines of which areas of the country would get the vaccine, the first batches, uh, Scott Air Force Base fit into all the parameters. We were a certain size, uh, metropolitan area, all those other things. But um, for some reason, don't know why, uh, we, we didn't get any on that first batch. Uh, so we're waiting on the next round. But now that we're bulked in with the National Guard and the states, uh, we're waiting on that. But uh, still no timeline on it. We're still still working with the state Joint Force Headquarters and, and managing uh, the, the, the ordering and then the distribution within the state. And then once the distribution occurs and we get them here in hand, once again, we will be applying it uh, according to our uh, distribution strategy. And uh, it'll most likely be you know, two UTAs in a row for most of our traditionals and then the full-timers during the week if we can, and uh, obviously keeping the time required between the doses if required, unless a single-dose vaccine comes out in amount of time that we can uh, start utilizing that one instead. I have two questions. Uh, um, are you going to get it? Um, well, yeah, most likely, yes. Yeah, I haven't – right now at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm not considering myself I'm, – I'm, I'm not uh, in that tier level. I'm, I'm, I'm tier two, I guess. But uh, I look at it as my whether or not I get sick is not going to impact the wing. I can work from home. I can work uh, via cell phone. I can uh, do all kinds of things, whereas, you know, other folks uh, have a higher priority. But I'm, I'm sure that once we get enough vaccines, uh, I'll be in the line with everybody else. 
What is the, what will the wing or the National Guard be involved in any way helping the community with uh, vaccinate or with vaccination and and uh, and uh, what am I trying to say? Disperse that throughout the communities. Right. Yeah, the uh, um, the distribution plan. Yes, yeah. I, I would imagine that the National Guard as a whole would be part of that uh, since it is a, a national level event. It's uh, there. There are some kind of hurdles you got to get done, get through to get that done and make sure we can do that because uh, some of our folks aren't credentialed for those kind of things. And it, it, so medicals work and all those kind of things and working with their installation partner to, uh, to get all that squared away. But uh, if we can help, we will most for sure. That's what we do. <laughs> One twenty six. I mean, the last nine months has been nothing but uh, helping everybody around the world, uh, you know, and, and a lot here in the state, but um, We'll have to see how the distribution plan comes and what they need from us and, and whether, or not, uh, whether or not we're actually needed. You mentioned your first year as commander of the wing. What's that been like? And is it, I guess, uh, the other part of that, is it more challenging than being operations commander, which where you just came from? Right. Um, it's definitely more challenging. Definitely uh, much more broad-based. Uh, operations is, uh, granted, it's... I was looking at uh, it, flying airplanes is what this wing is. That's our mission, right, is to go and refuel airplanes around the world. That is that is our primary mission. So to fly airplanes and get that mission running is, is obviously critical. And uh, everything in the wing supports the flying mission. But um, that's all you have. So as the ops group commander, it was uh, I just had to worry about that. So these big issues that popped up, you know, whether or not I had to shut down a wing, I, I let the wing commander worry about that. Um, but now here I might got to worry about uh, not only the operation of the entire wing, but how do I interact with the installation partners? How do I interact with the local community? Um, I'm interacting almost daily basis with Joint Force Headquarters in Illinois, where I didn't do any of that stuff before. So flying for me now has been relegated very, very low, and it's really become much, much more of taking care of roughly a thousand people, you know, in the wing, plus, you know, all their families and everything else rather than just the operations group. So much, uh, much bigger animal than, uh, than I kind of expected. But, uh, and of course, events of 2020 made it even more interesting. I was just going to ask, what was your expectation coming into the job? Thinking, okay, I'm going to be the wing commander. <laughs> not gonna, Not that it's going to be easy, but... You know how I mean. You're going from ops group to a wing. I don't. I don't what was your expectations? I guess. Um, I guess my expectation was since I've been in the wing for so long and I've seen everything from. I mean, I was in Chicago for ten years and then here for twenty. And um, uh, unlike uh, unlike most people in a military unit in a thirty year career, you're going to have fifteen commanders roughly. You know, I've had four wow. wing commanders. You know, so at that point, um, so you. You don't see the changes. You don't see the the change of leadership as often in a guard unit, typically. Um, but I knew from me, my own life, and those kind of things, that uh, having an opportunity to lead the wing and and really kind of close out my military career at the 126th uh, when I started as an Airman Basic, you know, and, and coming up in the same wing, I kind of looked at it as you know icing on the cake. It's kind of like the cherry on top. It's the uh, it's the way to kind of go out, but my my expectation was I am going to make sure that the the leadership teams that are built and the the benches, if you will, and, and every single unit in the wing was built in such a way that for the next five to ten to fifteen years we were developing 
airmen and developing leaders so that the wing could really continue its level of excellence long term rather than what are we doing tomorrow? What are we doing next week? It's, you know, okay, we got that handled, but what are we doing in five years? What's our 10-year plan? And what are we doing today to get to that point? Um, so really it was all about, uh, um, I kind of look at this like a head coach. You know, it's, you take each game day by day, but to win a game, you got to look at film. You got to look at, so what are we doing individually by person to execute the team event each day? But ultimately, what's the goal, right? The, the goal is to finish the season in a winning you know, point and ideally, you know, win the Super Bowl, so to speak. Uh, but so it was always that long-term vision. And, and so my going into it, I wanted to, you know, really kind of make sure the leaders were grown and, and, uh, and people really enjoyed working here and um, got recognized for all the good work they do and, and those kind of things. And so to me as a head coach, it was kind of like, uh, yeah, I might be leading the wing, but at the same time, it's everyone in the wing does it. So I want to make sure they get the recognition and, right. and, uh, and, and really like being here. And then a week later, it's... <laughs> Literally. Not even a week later, right? Literally, well, it was the next day. Uh, I took command on a Saturday, and then Sunday morning I was talking to the group commanders about we had two airplanes um, and about 30 folks out in Germany uh, on a mission, and they were getting ready to come home in about two days from that time. And I said, hey, um, you know, what, what are we doing with these folks out there in Europe? You know, it's, you know, COVID's really hot and heavy in Germany, and what are they doing? Oh, well, the, you know, the crews weren't flying, and so they were pretty much given free reign, and uh, they were doing what, people do out there you know they were sure. enjoying the area and they had yeah done a little traveling and but at that time on that sunday it was uh, oh no no there's no rules there's no they're they're fine there's it's fine so sure enough on tuesday they get home um and our, our sister unit peoria was in the same boat they were coming home from their long-term deployment and had stopped in europe and things um and it didn't take long before uh, I think they got home on tuesday and I think wednesday the air force came down with guidance that hey anybody coming through that country or you know, those level three countries needed to, that first term ROM came out. Oh, yeah. Right then. And uh, so we immediately had to tell all of our folks on that trip, hey, two weeks, you're now on order for two more weeks to make sure you're not sick. Hey, that's not a bad deal. I mean, right. <laughs> right. So for some people, it was great. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then a week after that was when, well, within that week, having discussions with the installation partners and the commanders about, hey, we might have to shut down, we might have to do this, and trying to work with them. And then, of course, me working with the state headquarters, too, who, you know, they, they didn't have the experiences that we had here. Um, so the next week was the, hey, we, we're going to have to shut it down. And um, simply because the wing, the installation was shutting down. And because the installation was going into that uh, isolation mode, we had to. We, we yeah, the, isolation, the installation drives the rules on that. So uh, um, initially... Uh, it was a little bit of a few questions from up north, from our friends up north, and uh, <laughs> said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I, base is closed. I have nothing I can do. And it didn't take much more than a day or two before that wing, our sister unit, 182nd, started experiencing some issues with COVID. And, and then it spread literally, no pun intended, but spread ra rapidly to the other wings in the uh, rest of the state. So, man. But, yeah, when we initially shut down the wing, uh, we had, uh, uh, as far as we knew, uh, no, no cases in the local area at all. Wow. when the wing shut down. So it was done as a precautionary measure at the time, and it didn't take long for cases to start popping up anyway. What's the, that brings up a good question. What's the challenge of working with, uh, uh, with an installation commander as the wing commander? Because I don't, you know, some bases don't, not everybody has to deal with that, with a, a big, head, you know, big Air Force mm -hmm. uh, com, uh, command on the other side of base. 
Right. So the 375th Wing Commander is the installation commander. So he is the, uh, the mayor of Scott Air Force Base, if you will. Um, even though he's got a couple of four-star generals and multiple three-stars and even more two-stars and even more one-stars oh, on base. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's got, got probably as many generals on this base as Andrews Air Force Base does, but um, they live here, whereas Andrews, there's a lot of transients. But anyway, he, he runs the show. He's the one that uh, manages the installation uh, while he manages his own wing as well. So he has – so now – at that point, that's where um, we're not equal. I'm not the installation commander. I'm simply a tenant. I'm no different than AMC or Transcom or okay. 635th SCOW, you know, supply chain ops wing. Uh, I'm no different than any one of them. I'm just another tenant on this installation. So when the installation commander says, this is what we're doing on the installation, we, okay, got it. You know, we have some inputs. We kind of coordinate. We talk. And, and that's one thing about this installation commander. Um, and really, uh, a couple that they've had is, the coordination and the, the team cohesion of, uh, of what we call the mission partners of all the senior leaders on this installation is, is the best I've seen it in my 21 years of being on this base. And it's really impressive in that a, uh, an 06 colonel uh, who, who runs the installation has you know, a, uh, a very good relationship with the four stars and everyone else and all the wing commanders because we have four wings on the base, oh, wow. um, four separate wings, that, you know, he can have that conversation of, hey, this is what I'm thinking, this is where we need to go, this is what's going on, and, and everybody's on board. It's a great, great system. Uh, but that being said, when it comes to the wing level, he lets each individual wing commander be a wing commander. You know, even right. though we have the active associate 906, um, he's not – in our Chile because of the 906. He knows that they belong, you know, that they're part of our team. And, uh, but from an ADCON perspective, he knows he has some, some inputs there. But everything is done in a uh, coordinated effort. So it's really, really impressive. So as a, in, as a tenant, I can easily go to the installation commander and voice concerns or bring up issues and we can address those and work with them. And then as a wing commander, from a wing commander, wing commander, it's, it's no different. And it works really, really well. So going back to uh, you just assuming uh, command, to hear mm-hmm. all the unit awards uh, that were won during Colonel Jacobson's command, were you thinking, oh, man, I've got some big shoes <laughs> to fill? Because I know listening to uh, all the accomplishments, I was like, well, good luck, dude. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, no, I kind of look at it this way. Um, Nothing was done overnight. So uh, General Nazamas, uh, Colonel Jacobson, myself, w- w- nothing we're doing here is, um, I mean, y- you could trace back our performance back to really General Keesler. Uh, when General Keesler brought the wing down from Chicago uh, to here, um, he knew at the time that we needed to do things in this wing to set ourselves apart, especially being an active duty base. Uh, with the visibility that we would have at the Air Mobility Command headquarters that we needed to, and 18th Air Force headquarters, uh, which uh, at the time was uh, a player in our whole administrative uh, line. But um, so there were changes and there were kind of a, a, there was a culture of performance. And I can go back to 1989 when I joined this wing in the aircraft maintenance group as a crew chief that the first time I walked into the line shack and I saw these signs on the wall of, 
you know, n- nuclear operation readiness inspection, excellent, excellent year after year after year. And, and at the time, they were almost every year, but um, just all these accolades and stuff back from the 80s and 90s of wow. things we did back then. Um, so it's nothing new. Um, but what we're doing now, and one thing that General Nazamas did when he was here as the wing commander, really started to branch out more with a lot of the National and uh, National Guard Association of the United States, AMC, or National Guard level awards um, of things that we would really be competitive for, started putting in for, started doing all those things. Uh, and that, that's where it really started to kind of come up. So it, it's almost as if uh, kind of equated to, you know, when you're training for an Ironman, you know, you don't, uh, um, you don't say, I'm going to swim, bike, and run this fast, and this is going to be my finish time. Uh, you, you put a training plan together, you execute a training plan, and at the end, the results come based upon what you did the work in the months prior. So all these awards and all these things that you hear are from things that this wing and the wing membership has done for over a decade. And uh, certainly uh, our performance since uh, 2009 when the 906 showed up and became part of our wing, um, our performance really accelerated after that. Um, and then you start adding in all of the deployments that we had to do. And when the, the numbers for the deployments for the, uh, the tankers uh, went up dramatically and the Air National Guard as a whole supported that and, and became really the number one provider of, of service to, to the combatant commanders right. for that on the tanker side, uh, when that started happening, we were just one of the guard units that really just outperformed and, and shined and, and provided that service. And so really when I look at the results and the, I kinda, it's, it's because of the work we've done over the last couple of decades, not just, uh, not, certainly not what I've done. I mean, it's, uh, I've been part of the wing the whole time, but uh, it's really the team effort, what we've done over a long period of time. How does the 906 fit into our wing? Um, yeah, I, I, we, we, I hear a lot about them. I don't see them. I mean, I guess I do see them when I'm in the maintenance group. You, you couldn't tell one from the other. They're yeah. like, oh, I went to nine. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. But how do, what's their, how do they fit into the mission of uh, our wing? So back in 2005, uh, that General Nazamas, uh, Colonel Nazamas at the time as the wing commander, started working on uh, active association to get with us. Uh, and that was uh, an initiative done uh, to build three uh, active associations in the tanker community in the Air National Guard. And we were selected as one of them, along with Birmingham, Alabama, and Pease, New Hampshire. And um, the whole focus of that was to build a, a kind of attach an active duty squadron to a guard wing, be able to use their the guard International Guard's uh, equipment and uh, personnel to help train and educate and, and season some of those folks, uh, but ultimately get access to a few more tales for the active duty and and those kind of things. And uh, so. They are an active association, so they're active duty squadron. They're attached to the wing um, with an operational direction through me to the operations group commander. But the 906 actually touches every group except the medical group. And at one point, they actually had a flight dock assigned. So uh, it's just right now they don't. But uh, So they have folks in ops operations, maintenance, and support group. And uh, in our integrated 100%, we have 906 members who are office chiefs for the combined office whoever is in that office is under their under their authority and we have uh, the 906 commander has his squadron that he runs with his team but once again it's all integrated just like every other unit in the guard that's why you can't tell uh, the difference between who's who because we work 100 percent seamlessly together 
and that's kind of different than even some other active associations do. Some do them where they, it's, it's your squadron, you run it, you do your thing, and you, here's your allotment of tails and flying hours, and you execute what you got to execute, but we don't do it that way. And it really helps improve our overall execution, and that's why we do more than any other tanker wing, period. I heard you talking earlier about flying. You still fly. What, mm-hmm. how do, what's your role in as a pilot? What's your role as a... As a commander, what are your duties as a pilot? Have they changed since you become a wing commander? Uh, yeah, certainly, certainly. It's and it it started changing when I was a squadron commander. I mean, even as a, a squadron commander, your job is to fly less, but you know, lead more. And uh, as a group commander, I led even more and flew even less, and now I, you know, fly even less. <laughs> so, uh, but I typically fly once a week, and uh, my my role is no different. Once I get into a cockpit or with a crew, it's no different than it was when I was a co-pilot. I'm, I'm a member of that crew, and we work together to execute that particular mission. Um, there are times when I'm used as an instructor, so I'm actually, you know, helping to teach some of the younger folks, or sometimes the not-so-younger folks get together with uh, Colonel Babiak and give him a, a proficiency sortie, you know, or sit in the sim and, you know, do some uh, instruction type stuff. But uh, And then every once in a while, I get to evaluate. Uh, just last week, I gave a 906 member a no notice check ride uh but i did it my santa hat on so it was a christmas gift and it was a yeah we had fun with it but it was just a no notice uh, a chance to get out there and evaluate and and uh, I, those are the skills that still you know basic skills that i had back you know when i was an air crew you know basic crew dog and you know co-pilot and ac instructor all that right. kind of stuff that uh, those are the skills we still maintain and and because that, that's our mission so a chance to go out and do that still is, is but it's very little Really, when I go fly, it's really just to go fly the mission and, you know, see what's going on and talk to some of the crew members. And Once a week seems like a lot of flying. On average, yeah. I fly about three times a month, typically. That's pretty good. Yeah. Is that, what's, what's a, a normal pilot fly? How many, how many missions do they fly in a month, do you think? Um, it depends. So, um, some crew members, since I don't get to deploy as a, as a pilot. As oh, much, sure. You know, the, the, the ones that deploy and fly and those kind of things, they'll probably get in... Uh, probably flying 150 to 200 hours a year, maybe 300 hours a year, depending upon their oh. aggressive. We have some young, we have some very young aggressive air crew members who really, really like to fly, and that, uh, and that they do it. Um, early in my career, I was getting uh, upwards of 400 hours a year flying, um, but uh, because I was a was consulting a guard bum, you know, I didn't have a full time job on the outside. I just Whatever the guard needed, I was there, and I, I, I was always available, and I, I stuck my nose in the scheduling shop quite a bit and said, hey, you need someone to fly today? I'm here, and uh, so I, <laughs> I got to fly a lot. But uh, nowadays, it's probably under 100 each year for me in the tanker, unless I actually go on a long trip or something like that. So definitely not as much as I used to. But uh, on average, I would say the average uh, air crew member, and if you take out you know, myself, the op group commander, the vice wing commander, if you take us out of it, it helps the average go up a little bit because we don't fly as much. Uh, I would say probably uh, 100 hours a year on, okay. a, on average for most of the pilots. What's, a, what, what's the average of a flight? Our average sortie duration is about three hours. Oh, okay. So, yeah. All right. Uh, what makes a good pilot, in your opinion? Hmm. Um, in this airplane, it's the ability to work together as a team. It is uh, because it's a crew airplane and you have two officers and one listed as the basic crew, uh, being able to work together as a team. And that means the aircraft commander has to know the overall mission 
You know, what is the objective of today? What are we doing today? What's the mission we're executing? And then getting the co-pilot and the boom all on the same page, getting everybody to work together. And, and then when you get out to the flight line, you work with the crew chiefs and getting you to launch that airplane and then uh, all that other stuff. So it's really the team event uh, to, to execute a mission in the tanker. It's, it's not a single-seat airplane, and the single-seat mentality will, will get you in trouble real quick. That's for sure. How do you work as a team? Because it just, I mean, I don't know. I, and my rudimentary thought is you fly a plane up, the boom, you know, you guys fill up a plane, fill up a plane, <laughs> you guys leave. I mean, what, right. what all goes on in, in that mission, in that teamwork? Uh, it starts in uh, mission planning, really. And, uh, and, and really, if you think about it, it starts almost months before when the folks, the full-timers in the operations group that build a flying schedule and say, hey, we need to fly X number of sorties in a, in a year. And then they break it down to the month and then to the week and to the day. And then once that number of sorties in a day is filled, then they go, okay, now when we're refueling against it. And the, all that planning just to build the mission itself. And then once the mission's built, then the scheduler puts crews to it. And then even that has some, well, you know, if I've got an aircraft commander, I'm going to put this brand-new co-pilot. Well, that aircraft commander now needs to be an instructor. And then we need a, a student boom. And, oh, now we need a student instructor, a boom instructor. So um, that's everything that builds to that actual flight. Okay. And then on flight day, it's, uh, it would be the equivalent of uh, um, you and I going on a, uh, a trip, a cycling trip. Right. And, uh, you know, we, we, we show up that day and the, the trip is already built. But now you and I work together to get the bikes loaded drive the car out to Colorado, execute that ride, put it all back together, and then we'll drive home. We don't really have to say a lot because we know that when you're driving, you're driving, or the person not driving is taking care of the map, you know, and the, you know, the person in the back is taking care of the food, whatever it is, you know, it's, right. there's a team kind of okay. atmosphere there. And uh, that's the way we do it with the, so when you show up to fly, the aircraft commander is the person in charge of executing the mission. The co-pilot's in charge with his specific duties or her specific duties. The boom operator's in charge of their specific duties. And as the aircraft commander, sometimes you got to give that authority and responsibility to the airman boom operator to say, okay, you have the radios. You're in control of the tail end of the airplane. You tell me what I need to do. And then you trust that their training was such that they know what they're doing. And, and, uh, and, I, I, in my experience, in my career, and I've got a few hours, uh, I, I don't think I've ever flown with an airman, uh, basic, or a senior airman even, that has made me go, oh, man, I'm not so sure this person knows what they're doing. It, it, quite the opposite. It's from a team perspective. I know that when that A1C comes out of boom school and is signed off by my chief boom in the aerofueling squadron, I know for a fact that I can trust that person on a combat sortie over the most – desolate terrain to execute the mission and and telling me what's going on in the back so that's the team thing i'm talking about is you got to trust the person you're with and uh you know so it's so from a you guys about being a pilot so from that perspective when you're going through pilot training there's a lot of single seat mentality of training there's a lot of singles hey you're in this thing by yourself because there's a lot of solo flying okay you're in, in the airplane by yourself executing your mission for that day um but when you get further along in pilot training and they realize, okay, you're going to go to a tanker, we're going to put you in the T1, now starts the, the team environment. But it still comes back to you need to know your job as best you can. Because if you know your job really, really well and you're doing it well, you're helping the rest of the team 
perform better. If you're struggling in your own area, then the rest of the team is struggling because they not only have to do their work that they have to do, but they have to then kind of help carry you along as well. So yeah, it starts with the, the sole person knowing their job really, really well. And you can, you can almost apply that to, really, you could apply it to any position anywhere in any job, whether it's military or not, is as an individual, you need to do your own job extremely well um, to at least a, a competent level that people can look at and go, yep, they're good, they're, they're good. And, uh, you know, and then once you do that, then you start learning the rest of the stuff. That was part one of my conversation with 126th Air Refueling Wing Commander Colonel Tom Jackson. We'll have more of my conversation with the commander in a future roll call episode. We'll talk more about his career uh, coming up through uh, the ranks in the wing and some history behind the wing, and we'll talk some cycling. One thing we forgot was to congratulate Illinois Assistant Adjutant General Air Major General Peter Nizamis, former 126th Air Refueling Wing Commander. General Nizamis was promoted from Brigadier General to Major General last week, December 29th. You can see pictures of his promotion ceremony uh, from Brigadier General to Major General on our social media. You can find all our links to our webpage and YouTube at linktr.ee forward slash 126ARW. I'll put a link to uh to our link tree in the description if you're watching on facebook or instagram you can also download this on your favorite podcast app so you can take it on the go one more thing before we go good luck to the wings outstanding airman of the year for 2021 airman of the year senior airman cole Delphius, 126 operations group nco of the year staff sergeant mariah nelson 126 the medical group Senior NCO of the Year, Master Sergeant Brian Hatfield, 126th Headquarters. He's at Command Post. And First Sergeant of the Year, Senior Master Sergeant Nicole Peterson, 126th Mission Support Group. They are representing the wing during the January UTA at Camp Lincoln in Springfield. Thanks for listening to Roll Call, a 126th Air Refueling Wing podcast focused on people, mission, and community. I'm Tech Sergeant Brian Ellison.